We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Join Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Is there a character on the show who you feel a little closer to, a little more in love with than the others? Is there a favorite child? <laughs> wow, not favorite child to write. Jesus. Okay. Come on. Um, Every family's got the I favorite mean, child. I think Sam and Lionel are probably like the extroverted and introverted extremes of my personality. And Lionel specifically, because he's gay and black and is sort of navigating all of that, is dealing with a lot of things that I very specifically dealt with. You know, one of them is the assumption that black people, that black men in particular won't accept me because I'm gay uh, and having to get over that assumption and realizing that that assumption sometimes is true, but also sometimes is blocking me from connections. You know, even though it was sort of like a self-defensive thing, you know, Lionel has to go through that realization. I had to go through that realization. Justin Simeon is the creator, writer, producer, and director of Dear White People, one of the illest shows on Netflix, which came from a movie, which is one of the dopest movies that came out in the last 10 years. Justin is brilliant and hysterical and one of the central voices in the modern Black cinematic golden era. I called him at home so we could maintain appropriate social distancing, and we got deep about his show and the movie that he's working on now, a horror film called Bad Hair. This, of course, is the Patreon era of Torre show, so if you want to hear the whole episode of me and Justin going into his film background, his horror movie, and everything else... Go to patreon.com slash show and support our growing team and you'll get full access to the Wednesday episodes and Friday Patreon exclusives with people like Malcolm Gladwell, ZZ Packer, Morris Day, Lil Yachty, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and more. Now, it's Justin Simeon on Torre Show. So how is it for you right now under Corona quarantine? Are you stuck <laughs> in the house 23 hours a day like all the rest of us? 
Yes, it's weird. I mean, like I'm a I'm a homebody and I'm an introvert, but this is ridiculous, you know. <laughs> it really is, but it, I I think like I'm. I don't know. Me and my partner, Rick, like, I feel like we're uniquely built for it because we both like staying at home anyway. Mm. Um, but I think the thing that's that is more the existential side of it that messes with me because, you know, um, I'm still running the writer's room for Dear White People. I'm still editing my movie. Like, I'm still acting as if, you know, all of these deadlines are, are terribly important. But when I'm not busy, like, <laughs> you know, I sort of go down the rabbit hole of like, what is life? Will we like, will shows ever come out again? <laughs> what will my career be like? You know, uh, what is this world that I'm, I'm suddenly uh, putting stuff into? What is that world going to be? You know? Yeah. It right now, at least it doesn't feel relevant to make a comedy or something that, uh, you know, looks at the the nitty gritty of society. Like I find myself only <laughs> watching like horror films because I'm like, that's the only oh, thing wow. that actually makes any sense. Well, I got one of those coming out too, so that's good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the thing that the thing about dear white people that is is helpful is, I mean, we talked about it and we were like, okay, we're not making a coronavirus season. Like that would be that's mm. too much. But, um, but even as a creator, of, as a creator, what would that look like? Like everybody's in their own homes, zooming to each other. Like that would be terrible television anyway. And honestly, I have no idea what it would look like because we're still at the beginning of it. You know what I mean? Like we don't I don't know what society is going to be. I mean, this is one of those moments that, you know, I, I think, you know, especially people in my generation, we sort of like went through 9-11, but, you know, we've only watched documentaries about, like, World War II and, like, you know, uh, these sort of major moments in history where the entire globe had to change their habits for because of some crisis. Um, we're living through that right now. So, you know, part of it is I, I as an artist, I want to comment on the world we're living in, especially with a show like Dear White People, and I'm not sure what that world's going to be. But the one thing that we do, that we were able to identify is that, you know, so much of Dear White People from the movie to the show is about identity versus self. And and usually those identities that these kids have to carry and that, of course, we all have to carry um, are really tied to capitalism and our productivity. And I feel like everybody's having that crisis right now. Of like, what am I, you know, if I can't produce in the normal way that uh, I've sort of been geared to do my whole life? Um so in that way, there's a parallel, but it's still very strange. <laughs> it's still very strange. It's like we're making pop, you know, pop culture references that I'm like, I'm sure I'm like, I don't know if that if that chain will even be open or if that, that celebrity will be relevant. I, I don't know. I mean, it, you, you know, it is really interesting. It is really honest to say that the show, Dear White People, is about identity versus self because they seem to be constantly being pulled in the direction of, here's what I want from my day or my life or this struggle in the, in the life of the school, um, be it, you know, as, as a, as a woman, as a person who wants to date a white person, as a gay person, trying to figure that out, whatever it is. But then the pull of the community is dragging you in the other direction. Right. And the group think, and that was really present for me when I was in college mm. a very long time ago. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I know, I mean, it's a really 
honest and deep struggle that all of us go, are going through at that time in our life and, and beyond in the work world, you still have that. But when you're in college, you are really feeling that in a very tangible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that's to me why college is such a great microcosm for film and TV, because it really is sort of like society at large kind of condensed into this space where you sort of know all the rules, you know, um, you kind of get the hierarchy of a school uh, without having to be explained it. And I felt like we could really get into it. And I have to say, um, you wrote a book uh, about post-racial America <laughs> that was very influential. Uh, your book and um, and the book, uh, Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria? Mm-hmm. Those, two, those two books together really helped me sort of figure out what I needed to say with that first film. And, you know, what it kept getting to for me is that black people... Or, you know, people of color, any any sort of like um, community that's on the margins that isn't the default. Um, you know, we have to play this sort of constant game of doublethink, uh, where we have to be aware of how we are being perceived, either by our own people or by the dominant culture. And you know, we don't really have the same opportunities to figure out who we really are because we are constantly trying to survive. Uh, you know, other people's kind of of needs from us and 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 it comes it's from within the community and without the community because you know you especially feel this as a as a filmmaker or when i'm doing a tv show it's like you know there's if i was a white person there would be you know i could sort of be a little bit more um i don't know uh uh true to the sort of pure artistic intent but uh mm-hmm. you know as a queer black man like i have to think about like the political ramifications for what i'm doing mm-hmm. i have to think about like how is this going to be perceived by my people by white people how is it going you know are do we have a you know are we how is the skin color ratio going in the cast mm. uh, are we are we saying something that we don't mean about this group of people you know w- w- there's like all of these different like voices in the head because you know we're trying to overcome societal oppression as well as be entertained (laughs) no it's really it's really interesting that you are so tangibly aware that the work does not function in a vacuum it touches up against all these political ideas and identities i mean even when you're down to talking about like the skin color ratio like you're casting and you're thinking very consciously about do we have a good ratio of light to dark to medium like how does that even play out i mean it's tricky because you know i know that i know just from my my upbringing and my understanding of storytelling that like you got to always do what's right for the story but you don't especially when it comes to black content you know there's all these sort of subtle messages that you may not even mean to sort of be transmitting but that can crop up you know and you have to think about things like okay is every light skinned person and sometimes this is just by coincidence but you have to think about like is every light skinned person portrayed one way and every dark skinned person portrayed a different way and how many do we have of of each you know sort of subgroup there are you know there are so many other subgroups of black as well <laughs> and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. cultural identities within the African diaspora. And it's like, you want to make sure that if there is one version of one person that they are not sort of saying something representative about that whole group of people. And I learned this, you know, I, 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 I felt this instinctively making the movie, but I really got it 
on the road with the movie, you know, um, when I started doing Q and A's and stuff and, you know, I'd walk into one room where the movie was too black for a group of people. Then I'd walk into another room where it wasn't black enough or it wasn't gay enough or, you know, what am I saying about, I remember someone was taking me to task because of the moment when Sam takes her hair down, uh, in the movie. Hmm. It's like, so what am I saying? Am I saying that like European standards of beauty or freedom? And and it's just like, you know, it's just a, it's a minefield of, of, Hmm. uh, of messages because, you know, we have so few stories told to us and told for us. And there are some blind spots that, are just very abundant and, and and it's very hard to try to get something across, be entertaining, uh, be artistic, but avoid those minefields for, you know, the people that I'm actually making this thing for. So let's talk about the movie. I want to talk about the journey to the television show, um, which starts with the movie, which started with an incredible trailer, but just, you know, not self-servingly at all. Can we talk in a little more detail about how my book, Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness, inspired what you're talking about? Because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm incredibly uh, uh, honored uh, to hear you say that. And um, oh, yeah. just to try to understand a little bit more the connection uh, for you there. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it really began, I was in, you know, my Black Student Union in college having a conversation with my black friends that I just thought was really interesting and that I had never really seen in movies and TV before. And at that time, you know, 2005, uh, what was considered black film, you know, wasn't necessarily like that Spike Lee, Robert Townsend's, you know, social commentary thing. It was more broad sort of, you know, entertainment escapism stuff. And, uh, and I felt like, wow, I want to make a smart, kind of conversational movie about the issues, you know, about what it feels like to be black right now. And I, you know, I didn't, I never had the benefit of being black among all black people. You know, I, I always found myself being a black face in, in white spaces and sort of, you know, walking that line. And, uh, you know, particularly at that time, it, we, we, you know, especially after Obama was elected president, uh, I felt like, I, f- I felt in my bones that I was still sort of subject to societal oppression, but it felt very taboo at the time to say that or to talk about that because everybody was in this, you know, post-racial kind of fantasy uh, after he was elected. And your book, Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness, really like... It, it gave me permission, honestly, to articulate, no, wait a minute, racism is very much still alive and well and afoot. And in fact, like, it's even scarier because it's so subversive now. And so few people want to admit it and, and talk about it honestly. And I think, you know, the vibe of that first movie, which was sort of, um, you know, uh, pre-Black Lives Matter. Uh, yep, yep. The, the vibe of that movie was very like, you know, are we allowed to say this? You know what I mean? It was sort of like it, we were seeing characters in that movie talk about things that I think at the time a lot of people of color were saying in, in sort of huddles and, and sort of privately amongst ourselves. But we weren't really saying it out loud uh, in front of mixed company. And uh, and a lot of that, you know, sort of the permission to, to go there and to admit that what I was experiencing actually was very much still racism. Um, I I don't know. I I just remember reading that book and and having this kind of sick euphoria of like, 
Yes, yes, this is exactly what I've been saying. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's exactly how I feel. Thank you so much. Uh, you know. I mean, there was nothing <laughs> there was nothing in the content that suggested I am afraid or I am tiptoeing into this material. The film itself, uh, starting with the trailer, was very bold, was very self-assured, was very much comfortable with the notion of we are dealing with blackness in a complex way and we are funny and we are badass. And it reminded me of the way Spike roared into the public consciousness with you know, an audacious public statement that was full of its own artistic confidence, right? And confidence in the point that it wanted to make. And I remember the first time I saw your trailer online and it seemed artistically, visually very post-Spike, but also like in your face, taking you back to school, funny, brilliant, like, I was like, oh, I have to see that. And a lot of people said the <laughs> same thing. Just talk about the confidence that you, because you said, you know, that you needed to find the, let's say, approval to feel that way publicly. But then when you go to make the piece, you were like, yeah, I'm, it felt to me like I'm banging my <laughs> chest. I feel good about this point. Well, I'm glad that that's how that came across. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you know, it's sort of um, I, when I say the, the confidence to say it, I mean, it, it's sort of the way art is supposed to function. You know, I think really great storytelling gives you permission to feel things and to admit things and to say things and to articulate things that, you know, you maybe felt but never had the words for before. That's what your book did for me. And um, and so I wanted to do that as confidently as I could with the movie and, uh, you know, I had also had a lot of time to think about it. Um, you know, the first thing I wrote for Dear White People was in 2005. We didn't make that movie until 2013. So there were a lot of ideas. Uh, you know, there was a lot going on in that movie. And one of the things that I really was passionate about, because I'm, you know, I'm a student of cinema. I love cinema. And, uh, you know, especially at that time, I didn't feel like all of our, our stories were necessarily being told in a cinematic way. So it was really important for me to not only come with a new conversation, but also um, uh, a sort of style that would kind of reflect that newness. And the idea of, of putting black faces in these sort of cinematic frames that, you know, whether you're aware of it or not, you only really see with white people in them. It was something that I thought was really important. You know, I remember I remember when I saw Do the Right Thing uh, in high school and just was like, literally the light bulb went off. It's like, Oh, we can do black stories like this too. Mm. You know, we can, we can sort of pull from the French new wave and, and we can pull from Altman and, and we can pull from Bergman and we can pull from Kubrick and tell black stories. Like that was a, a big light bulb moment for me. And I wanted to sort of continue in that direction, which is, you know, whether you catch it or not, that movie is, is, is quoting so many classic, films uh but with black faces in it like what um, because i so uh a, a big one is metropolis uh the fritz lang film mm. uh, from the 20s which is so much about you know class rebellion and and sort of oppression uh you know the scene when they're in the movie theater talking about uh you know the tyler perry movie you know that that's a direct visual quote from a scene from metropolis there are visual quotes from barry linden which is one of my favorite Kubrick movies, um, mm -hmm. particularly around Troy, who I felt was, you know, 
trying to exist in both of these worlds. Um, there's a, there's a, there's visual quoting from Bergman, particularly from Persona, uh, when it comes to Coco. Uh, and, and, and there's just a lot of moments like that scattered throughout the film that really are for me, but I think subconsciously tell you that you're watching something um, that's new, uh, but also knowledgeable about what came before it. Um, I very much wanted to show that black stories belonged in the center of cinema, you know, mm-hmm. not just sort of like a, a sort of niche genre of cinema. Like we belonged in the center of it. Hell yeah. So when you make, you make a movie that was fantastic. I was there the first weekend. I went to see it on the Upper East Side of New York and the crowd was very black, very excited, yelling at the screen <laughs> in the way that you want. So it was to- the perfect experience for that movie. It's called Dear White People. So this the, the title is literally addressing white people, but the movie <laughs> is not it's the movie is not suffused with the white gaze, right? It is it no, is definitely no. rejected the white gaze and it is focused on the concerns of the black people. Um which mm-hmm. is sort of an interesting uh almost sleight of hand that you pull there, right? And it's the same in the television show. This is not black culture for white people. This is definitely black culture for black people. Right. Absolutely. How do you do that? I don't know, man. (laughs) I don't know. It's funny because the title sort of, uh, I I always hear the story of, of both white and black people or people of other races saying, you know, well, you know, the title made me think it was one thing, but then I watched it and I realized it was another thing. I mean, I don't know. Part of it was, I thought it was, there was something fun uh, about doing a satire that has a bit of a misnomer title. Uh, But also because the question of is something like dear white people reverse racist, you know, which is Mm. ridiculous, a ridiculous, a ridiculous question. But, but that question really is one of the driving narrative uh, uh, drivers in the movie and the show, you know, Sam's radio show within the the film and TV series, dear white people um, where she's challenging sort of, white notions uh you know whether or not that is okay is is sort of a big uh, to do in, in both iterations of it so that's part of why the title is that way but also as i began to work on it more and more thematically i realized that one of the not yeah i guess one of the the poisons or one of the setbacks of of being a person of color in this country is that we always feel like we have to respond to whiteness you know whether mm. it is w- white fear of us or being underestimated or being overestimated or, you know, it always try as we might to avoid it. At some point, the white mass popular opinion about any given thing does affect us. And, mm. um, but we're trying to find space to be our, our authentic selves. And we're trying to find space to sort of just live and to just breathe, but we have to keep coming up against you know, having to answer to white people on a variety of topics and issues. And and so for me, it's sort of, it was a statement about that. It was kind of like an underhanded statement about that uh, as well. You talk about being a student of film and it's clear that you are. Can you talk about some of your, like, do you have a top five favorite uh, filmmakers of all time? Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, Kubrick is definitely up there. He's amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just remember seeing Eyes Wide Shut and hating it. I remember seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey, actually, several times and just totally hating it. And then watching Eyes Wide Shut and not getting it, hating it, 
but I kept watching it. And by the time I got to the end of that movie, I was so riveted <laughs> that, you know, when you get to the part where Nicole Kidman is like, well, you know what we should do now? Fuck. I, like, it just <laughs> knocked, it knocked me over. And I was like, who, who, how did he do that? How did he turn me from bored to riveted? And did he do that on purpose? And it, it just sort of it rabbit holed me into like analyzing his films. And now 2001 A Space Odyssey is literally my favorite movie of all time. I think it is one of the best movies made by an American filmmaker. How? Um, open the pod door. <laughs> Like, I know. It, I, I saw. I tr- I watched it so many times with so much loathing for it. it uh, you know, no one was more surprised than me. <laughs> so I, mean, I, you know, it, to me, to me, a, he's a magician and a master. It's amazing how that opening scene uh, with the the monkeys and then the future technology sort of explodes into the moment. How that has been taken and parodied and redone in commercials and other movies and the Simpsons and on and oh, on. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's like, like moments in the matrix are just like taken into the culture and like just sort of disseminated all over the place. Absolutely. I mean, the, the crazy thing about Kubrick is like watching his movies suddenly fills in so many blanks for the Simpsons, actually, specifically, because they <laughs> reference they reference Kubrick movies so much. And, I, you know, as a kid and stuff, I was like, oh, that's funny. But now I actually get, oh, no, that's a very specific reference. Got it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, Kubrick is really up there for me. Uh, I also just really love Bergman. Uh, um, I, I, I mentioned Fritz Lang before. I'm, I'm a huge i watch i love his films um i love billy wilder movies mm. uh you know um of course i love you know spike and townsend um and all of my contemporaries um i don't know i don't know if i've hit five yet but uh. <laughs> i think we're i think we're at seven but that's fine um uh, john frankenheimer bob fossey i don't know <laughs> it, it does Altman. Alt- Robert of Altman. I love Altman. Yeah. It does seem like um, there's a black visual culture golden age going on. Um, and I think you're definitely like right in the middle of it. I feel like there's more black people um, behind the camera and in front of the camera creating really great authentic art you know, in movies, in television, I think there's more than ever um, and creating more authentic, inspiring art than ever. Does it, does it feel like that to you? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it absolutely does. It feels like there's this little window of opportunity that has, you know, creased open and uh, it's, it's cool to see. It, It really is. And, What's also been really rewarding for me is people who were just starting, you know, when I made Dear White People, the movie, um, who are absolutely flourishing right now. And, and you know, directors who, you know, maybe their first thing was doing my show and now they're doing their own shows. And it's, it's fucking awesome. It, it really is. Because, like, when I made the movie, part of it was like I was making the content that I was starving for and that I wanted to see out there. And. Um, you know, I love making movies and I love making the show, but it also is nice to just sit down and watch it <laughs> and not have to make it in order to, in order to consume it. So, when you, um, well, when you sit down and watch, like, what do you, what do you like to watch that's out like now? Well, you know, specifically, like I'm, I'm really excited about what's happening with Boomerang. Um, 
the season two and, and with 20s. I love Atlanta, of course. Mm. Um, I mean, Atlanta is just, uh, I just love it. I love the way he thinks. I love the way that show works. So, okay, um, wait, okay, wait. So what is your favorite episode of Atlanta? Oh my God, Teddy Perkins, obviously. Teddy Perkins is extraordinary and I love Teddy Perkins. But for me, the 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 journey of the uh, the barber shop episode is oh shit so yeah. extraordinary really good. and it's like they're like one really two for me but like just the journey and the meaning of like yeah you'll go anywhere to get a haircut right and like you know yeah. and just just the journey of like this happens and this happens and this happens and it just is this natural sort of pull through the world i mean you know and teddy perkins is extraordinary it's like a little movie um i mean teddy perkins messed me up okay like for several days (laughs) (laughs) and and whenever art can do that to me i'm extremely appreciative wait when when the murder happens or when he expresses admiration for michael jackson's dad and richard williams and okay first of all the the whole way through i was messed up but specifically Specifically, when we met the dude in the basement, like mm. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for. I wasn't ready for Black Teddy stuck in the basement. I really wasn't. <laughs> and uh, you know, it was just. It was just very bold, and he went there. And the thing that's so great about it is that, like, you know, it, it, I know exactly the conundrum that he is. Uh, he's bringing to the forefront because any black person thinks about these things all the time. You know, our heroes who you know inspired us when we were coming up or as kids or whatever and you know their tragic ends like how do you reconcile those two things because you know especially for black folks like our heroes make us feel like we can get out of bed that sometimes like you know uh you know michael jackson or bill cosby or you know any of the fallen heroes like you know they're the reason why so many of us thought we you know had the right to even do anything in the Mm -hmm. world and Mm -hmm. to see them sort of you know stumble or, or, you know, we don't have to go all the way in there, but, you know, uh, you know, have these, these sort of public, very serious scandals. Um, it's very destabilizing in a soulful level for black people in a way that is different than just when like your favorite movie star, you know, did something. And so it's like, I don't know. I, I, I really, I I, like, I went into a deep sunken place after that episode and, and, uh, I had to have some very, you know, some soul to soul conversations with myself, well, which I love because like, you know, that's what art is supposed to do. And um, I love that black art is able to do that with more frequency now. Well, you talk about the sunken place. If you had to, if you could only watch one tonight, would you watch Get Out or Us? Oh, boy. I mean, I think Get Out just because it was so, I mean, God is just perfection. It is, it is so clean and perfect and um, you know, the other thing about Get Out is that it really, it was revolutionary, um, in a lot of ways. How? And, uh, I think one, one thing that I thought, you know, I was working on my own little hor- black horror movie at the time. It was just a script when I saw Get Out. And one of the things that I felt like, you know, and it was similar to when I read your book, actually. Um, but what I, what I didn't quite have words for before I saw Get Out was that like, you know, horror films always speak to some real societal fear, you know, mm. but, you know, whether we're talking about body snatchers or we're talking about, um, you know, child's play or we're talking about Nightmare on Elm Street, 
typically those fears have a, a just inherent white people tent to them. Like mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. we all, we all have these fears, but white people really get <laughs> like, you know, Friday the 13th in a way that I don't know that, you know, black people just instinctively get the horror in that movie and get out the horror in get out was, you know, these sort of seemingly liberal people who, because of their um, performative liberalism were actually blind to us, you know, these people who are so colorblind, they can't see that people of color are actually having a different experience and, and you know, sort of uh, falling, it, it, being prey to a system that works like that, but, you know, is in complete denial. Like, those are real, actual fears that haunt us in various ways. And to see that put in a movie uh, and, and to put in the language of psychological thriller um, I was like, wow, yes, this is where cinema has to go. Because, you know, a- as a black person, I've never sat through a horror movie and felt like it was speaking directly to my fears. Mm. And and that was revolutionary. And, you know, I think the fact that he he doesn't die in the end of the movie, it was revolutionary, too. Because mm. you're expecting him to get arrested at the end of the movie. I think that's the way it originally was, but they changed it to, well, it's, you know, his friend coming out the cop car, um... Yeah, to uh, agree him for me. I prefer the other. You prefer the the darker ending. I prefer the original ending that he ends up in prison. The cops come and arrest him. And of course, the black man is doing the right thing. And of course, (laughs) nobody believes. I mean, in that situation, who would believe that you were doing the right thing? And he goes to prison and we know that he's right. But the world does not. I, I I I thought I thought it was a teeny weeny bit of a cop out to have like Lil Rel show up and be like, "Oh my God, he's actually saved!" Like, eh. well, I mean, you know, look as a film as a film goer, uh, not film goer. What am I talking about? As a person who loves, uh, you know, I guess uh, challenging art. Mm-hmm. You know, I always love the tragic ending. You know, the tragic endings are always the best yes. because they say something very truthful. But I'm going to be honest, as a person in the trenches making a black horror film right now, I'm not sure if audiences on the whole are ready for it. And I and I remember being in the theater of Get Out and feeling the tension of the black people in the audience and the release of that tension when it was Laurel and the cop car. That feel that that sort of triumphant feeling, because we always die in the horror movies, you know, there was something a little political about that that I I I got when I was you know it, you know just from the experience of seeing it in a the theater I, I really felt that and um, you know I think maybe the artist in me appreciates the darker ending probably always right um, but I also you know I think as filmmakers like we're part artist but we're also like kind of part politician because we're trying to like we're making products for audiences um, to take into their daily lives and. Uh, uh, I, I have to say, I get why they did it. I really do. The, the response to it, I thought, was really tremendous, and um, and, and might have been just needed at that time. So I, I'm both sides on it. Can you tell us about your horror film? Yeah. So yeah. So it's called Bad Hair, and um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you probably. <laughs> it's a good I think start. That says it all. We've started yeah, off no, good. Yeah, it's called Bad Hair, and um, it takes place in 1989, which is when, like, the the weave sort of began to take over American hair salons. And um, this woman who is working as a VJ uh, for a channel called Culture, which is kind of like BET, 
Uh, she gets this weave so that she can start, you know, doing better and be seen in her job uh, because she's virtually unnoticed uh, with her natural hair. And um, the problem is that, you know, it's a killer weave. <laughs> what does that mean? In more ways, than, in more ways than one. It, uh, it sort of, uh, it does really well for her during the day, but at night uh, it, it sort of racks up a bit of a body count because it needs blood. <laughs> <laughs> it needs blood to survive. Uh, <laughs> is there, so is so, there is there a little comedy in it, or is it just like? Oh yeah, yeah. No, there's there's some comedy in it. I mean, I, you know, I is I wouldn't call it a horror comedy. It, it's sort of it has a satirical bite and it has some laughs in it. Uh, but it's also you know it's taking on some serious some serious stuff too. Um, you know, just sort of that that the way we all feel like we have to cut off parts of ourselves in order to get on in American society. You know, we really. I really take that to to task. I try to interrogate that with the film, and and particularly, uh, you know, as a queer man, um, I think growing up, I really I, I found my safe haven among black women and you know, mm. in black female culture. And I think it's fucked up what happens to black women in society and and how you know their culture is valued, but their bodies are not, and um, you know who they are as people is not given the same worth and. I, I felt like I could say something about that, you know, in the language of psychological thriller uh, with my final girl, Anna, who gets the weave. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. 
Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Why, what, just in general, why do we like uh, horror movies? I am not, I am not a, a horror movie goer. I will go see anything that Jordan Peele makes because that's the genius of him. But generally, I don't get the appeal of horror movies. But I know there is a dedicated audience that likes to be fucked with and to go to the theater and to be <laughs> scared out of their mind. I assume you're part of that community. So what? just what is that? What is that? relationship between filmmaker and audit like why do people like to go to the movies to be scared out of their mind well i'll admit i don't love to i don't like you know slasher porn horror movies like where the point of it is just to see like really hor- horrific violence uh that that's not that interesting to me but the the sort of um i think for me the 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 lane is is probably more psycho thriller, you know, which is a genre that probably begins with Psycho, you know, with Hitchcock and um, De Palma and uh, Polanski and uh, Kubrick and Jordan. You know, filmmakers sort of took that and made it into this sort of way you can sort of sneak in a social commentary into an otherwise very entertaining thrill ride. You know, it, it, Rosemary's Baby is a great, is, you know, considered a horror classic movie, but what it is, is a social, it's a piece of social commentary. So is Stepford Wives, um, you know, so, so are so many of these movies that kind of inspired uh, Bad Hair. I, I think people, I think for me, it's twofold. I think people, you know, the, the fear of, of death, of dying, of terrible things happening to us can be so uh, pervasive that when you just sort of, have that experience in a movie, there's something cathartic about it. It, it, it makes you less afraid uh, in your everyday life. But the other, the other thing for me that's really fun is that in these movies, because you're dealing with the supernatural, uh, you're dealing with the, the unconscious, uh, cinematically, you can just do a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> and the audience, you know, can go along with it because you know, the rules of everyday reality don't quite apply in these movies. And, um, and again, I, I just thought, I just think that they're really sneaky backdoor social commentaries uh, in, in the best of these movies. Mm. Um, and, and that to me, you know, is, is kind of irresistible as a filmmaker. I can make something entertaining. That's a ride, but also say something, but also, you know, sort of uh, try things uh, cinematically that I probably wouldn't get away with in dear white people or, you know, a, a straightforward drama or something. So, okay, you're successful in film and you're having a tremendous amount of success in television. What's the difference between making a TV show and making a movie? Yeah, uh, making a movie is a more finite thing. Right. You know, you, 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 you gather a bunch of people to sort of tell this one story and you try to mine that one story for every bit of, 
you know, creative ideas and, and conversation that it can have. And then you do the best you can and then it's done. And, and with a TV show, um, you know, it's, it's a little more ongoing. You sort of, I think a lot of us are trying to make cinema on TV, but the process of making TV is a lot quicker. <laughs> it's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot more cooks in the kitchen. There's a lot of other people that you have to sort of respond to. Um, and sometimes it can feel a little bit like you're making cans of soup, but you're trying to, you know, make that the most delicious can of soup you possibly can. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a trade-off because in TV, you get more canvas space. You get more room to tell the story. You can go deeper with the characters. You can, you know, uh, sort of exhaust an idea until every sort of story from it, you, you, you know, you've gotten from it. But you have to make it a lot quicker and you have to pump, you know, the, the sort of demands for that next season are, you know, right up on the heels of, of when you release the last one. And uh, it, it's exhausting, I have to say. I mean, you have a, a broad array of characters in your toolbox and the movie is focused on the Sam and there's other characters, but the movie is really focused on the world of Sam In the television show you are able to talk about Sam, but then dip out and have every, every episode seems to focus on a different character and Sam recedes. Um, so that gives you a, a nice sort of freedom to not be stuck in the same, in the life of the same character every time. But then you have the added responsibility of we have to create a world around this person and this person and this person. We have to build a full world around, you know, 13 people to make a 13 episode season. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's fun for me. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me, Teray, but for some reason, <laughs> that is fun for me. And, uh, you know, with the movie, it, it kind of came from, you know, the original concept of Dear White People as a movie was much more Altman, much more Nashville uh, mm. in that it was it was really sprawling and there were lots of, of protagonists. And really, because I had no money and <laughs> we had to sort of you know, make that movie under very limited resources and limited time. You know, how, I really how much did you of, make it for? Uh, just under a million. Oh wow, that's nothing. And and we shot it in nineteen days, and oh wow, you know, had two weeks of prep. It was crazy. That's um, fast. Yeah, but you know, I sort of I had to look to other versions of multi protagonist movies. You know, something like Do the Right Thing is really interesting because for every act in that movie, a different character sort of takes over. Um, and so, and so it's a multi-protagonist movie, but it's not like an Altman multi-protagonist movie. It, you feel like Mookie is the lead character, even though, you know, for large stretches of the movie, Mookie really isn't the central focus. Um, and, and so with the movie, you know, just because of the resources and, you know, trying to, trying to do something that really, there was nothing like it in the marketplace at the time, we kind of had to centralize it a little bit more and, you know, for me, the movie does a bit of a magic trick where we start with Sam, but it kind of hands off to Lionel because Lionel is the one that disrupts the party at the end. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to give a flavor of multi-protagonist. And with the show, I wanted to really make it multi-protagonist. You know, I didn't want anyone to feel like, well, the epicenter of black culture is this light skinned, you know, biracial woman. I wanted, you know, people who came to the show to see themselves in it and to see their points of views in it. And the fun of the show for me is, all of these conflicting points of views coming from black people and not agreeing with each other and sort of finding a way to, you know, to, to sort of overcome together despite all our differences, you know, is much more pointed in the show because I can actually give space to all of those opinions. You know, nobody, people rarely agree on the show, but nobody's wrong. 
Mm. And and that to me is was really important is mm. to is to give everybody's argument, you know, their fair share, their 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 due. Um do you I mean you talked about this a little bit before, but do you think about the responsibility that you have to your ancestors uh in your work? Like where does that show up in the work? Oh my god, all the time. <laughs> it's probably too much. Um I mean, you know, like I, I'll just say this, this is probably easy way to say it. I watch, uh, you know, Kim Burns has that jazz documentary. It's like mm-hmm. 40 million hours long. <laughs> I try to watch it. <laughs> I watch it every year, maybe sometimes twice a year, because, um, you know, to me, what the jazz musicians were going through in the 20s and 30s more closely resembles what I think black filmmakers are going through right now uh, than anything else, because, you know, black cinema is still very new. Cinema itself is still new. Um but sort of black contribution to it are very new. And uh, I, I think about the fact all the time that, you know, Duke, like people didn't realize that Duke Ellington was Duke Ellington. when Duke Ellington was alive and people didn't realize, you know, you know, people were, didn't realize, didn't appreciate Louis Armstrong as much as he was appreciated when he was alive. People didn't really get the true impact of how he changed the face of popular music what all these black artists were doing in in jazz, which has become our popular music of today, um, all of those innovations, you know, they didn't get their flowers when they were alive. And they, you know, had to overcome all kinds of obstacles and still they made such beautiful work. And I think about that all the time when I'm working. It's like, you know, yes, I, I, I get to have a TV show and I've been able to make a couple movies, but this shit is really hard. <laughs> you fight. You, you, I mean, the, the kind of situations I encounter, I just never would have imagined it. Uh, it is still very difficult to make things about people of color um, and to make complicated things about people of color and to take mm-hmm. risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is still very difficult to do. And you don't always get your flowers for doing it. You know, sometimes you break ground and then someone else takes the ground that you broke and they make a thing out of it and then they get the the flowers, but you got it. But that's not the point, you know? And, um, and so I, I think about that a lot uh, about all of the sort of hidden contributions that, um, that black artists have made to this country and to our, our popular culture, you know, that no one appreciates and that mass culture, you know, refuses to see, like I owe it to them to, to keep fighting. Can you talk about five black films that are deeply meaningful to you? Yeah. Uh, well, we talked about two of them. Um, Get Out and Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Hollywood Shuffle mm. continues to be a prescient <laughs> so powerful. sort of movie for me. Uh, and, and it's still... It still is so completely accurate. Uh, mm-hmm. Lady Sings the Blues is also mm. um, one for me, which is really important because, uh, you know, sort of that the the sort of musical biopic, I would say, is, is one of my favorite genres. And there really aren't a lot of black examples of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then let me see, like, God, it's, it's so hard to, to sort of choose one. But I think I think maybe. Um, I think maybe Malcolm X mm. has to be has to be the other one. I think uh you know, I think Malcolm X is like one of those movies where like I think Malcolm X is a perfect movie and it's um I think it is the best sort of 
political biopic I've ever seen. And uh, again, has so many stories about how to survive this moment, um, you know, through that through that story. So I, I keep going back to it. Anything from the last year or two that really moved you, just because there's been so many great ones over the last year or two, three years? Well, Moonlight really, mm. really got to me. Moonlight really hit me where I live because, um, you know, I'm gay. And uh, black gayness, really, there's very little space and culture for it. Um, yeah. That, that's not about ridicule or, or entertainment or fun or funny, being funny. And, uh, you know, just see this. There was two scenes in Moonlight that like really like got into my soul. One of them is when he's on the beach, you know, with his friend that he's attracted to. Mm-hmm. And they have that little exchange because, again, like that's a moment from my life that I just never even I never even imagined seeing that in a movie. I, mm-hmm. I never even imagined seeing something so specific to my experience reflected back to me in a movie. And then the scenes where um, uh, Mahershala is sort of dunking his son in the water and teaching him how to swim. uh, That just, you know, that, that sort of, you know, I, I grew up without a father figure. My dad died when he was six. And I think so many of us feel uh, abandoned by our fathers, either physically or because of our sexuality. Uh, You know, like I said before, I think a lot of gay black men find a safe haven in black female culture. Um, because being a black man and being a black gay man were never really allowed in popular culture, as far as I could tell. Uh, uh, you know, and, and so that moment to me was so powerful. Um, I remember seeing that movie very early and telling Barry, just like, don't change a thing like that. It just, it hit me really, really hard. I mean, the last third of that movie is so powerful because of who he becomes, this sort of ultra- can we say butch, right? Sort yeah. of t- tough mm-hmm. guy, but it, but his heart doesn't change. And the subtlety that they play that last bit out with is so beautiful. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's nuanced and like nuance like that in a Hollywood movie. Come on. When does that happen? No. Um, and especially with this experience, you know, it's like, I just, I never thought I would see it. I honestly never even thought I would see a movie like that, let alone make one or, you know, I just, it, I, it really hit me. Um, I also got to say, I, I, going back to your earlier question, but Raisin in the Sun, I have to say, is also mm. uh, a big black movie for me because uh, that was the first movie that I ever analyzed. Um, okay. When we were in, when I, I did theater uh, in high school, it's performing arts high school and the first thing we did, our, our theater teacher, Susie Phillips, put on Raisin in the Sun, and we stopped that movie every five minutes and asked questions like, why do you think the shot looks like that? Why do you think uh, it's framed in that way? Why do you think he said this and not that? Like, we, we analyzed that movie, like every frame of that movie, uh, and that was her way of sort of bringing us into, you know, the rules of, of theatrical storytelling. But as a filmmaker, you know, that left a big impression on me. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. You 
usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Torrey for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash Torrey. Thrivemarket.com slash Torrey. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. So let me ask you to dip into a debate I've had with some folks who also love cinema. So, I mean, to just, just to even determine what is a black film is complicated because yeah. it's, a, it's a director's medium. But if the story is about uh, black people and a black situation, then we sort of take it as a black film. And one of the most challenging films in that regard for me is Django Unchained, right? Mm. Jamie Foxx has this incredible liberational character who is defeating the white gaze from the the first scene to the end of the film. Um, You know, it's this amazing slavery picture, but it's made by this white guy and one who a lot of black people have a problem with, but one who some black people are like, he's making, he's putting powerful black people on screen over and over and over, even though he loves the N word quite a bit. Is, oh boy, yes, he does. <laughs> I, I had a friend who worked on Django and he's like, well, if you thought that was a lot, there were a lot more that I got taken out. But Oh my God, he, I can he, only imagine. Is Django a black film or no? Oh, man. <laughs> I guess technically it is um, because it's about black people and so it's an all black cast. I don't love Django. OK, like I <gasps> really I do. I do not like that movie. Um, I, I it's I'm very conflicted about this because as a fan of cinema, Tarantino, man, he, he is a master of cinema. OK, like he can he is an amazing filmmaker and I love a lot of his movies. I hate his sort of take on black people. I hate the way he writes us. I hate the way he puts, you know, the N word in our lips in ways that I don't recall other black people using it. But I think he's an amazing filmmaker. Django was really hard for me, though, because when I saw that movie, I was in a mostly white audience and the way they laughed was like a gut punch. I mean, every time someone called Django the N-word or, you know, all of these sort of the Mandingo and the Piccaninny and and all these stereotypes that sort of have been used to entertain white people, uh, you know, over the court, over the history of cinema, I saw those stereotypes working in exactly the same way for this white audience. And I just had a very visceral reaction to seeing the movie the first time I saw it. Now, I've talked to people who saw the movie with all black people or saw it at home or saw it in different circumstances. They had a different experience of watching that movie, but that was my experience of watching it. Um, it was very See, painful. It's interesting you put it that way because you're not really talking about 
your experience of it, right? You're talking about the white people around you, their experience, and that colored your experience. Well, I felt laughed at. I felt laughed at. I felt but if exploited. You had, but if you had watched it alone or just with uh, your partner, right, you know, or just mm-hmm. with black people, do you think you would have had a different experience of the movie? Or is it just overcolored I, by what will white people I, think of this? Well, it wasn't it wasn't what will white people think of this? I mean, that, it wasn't even a thought. It, w- it was a visceral feel. I don't think my experience of it would have been as visceral. Um, I think like it was a viscerally negative experience. It felt like I was like punched in the gut. Mm. Like when, you know, when when Samuel L. Jackson and him like have their their duel at the end and when he's, you know, get that nigga off the horse and all that kind of stuff. And, and, to, and just literally to hear the laughter in those moments that I didn't think were objectively funny. We're literally just laughing at black people playing out these archaic stereotypes that I have studied and read about. And I thought we were done with those. Um, that it ju- that just hurt my feelings. <laughs> mm. And I don't I don't know that I would have had that same element to it, but I, I still don't think I would have liked the movie. I, I don't think that him killing a bunch of people at the end and and him being the only one that doesn't have a, a southern accent and and all of that stuff. I, I didn't think that that saved the movie from my particular criticisms of it. You know, I, I think I think as a filmmaker, I think he has some well-directed sequences in the movie. But, you know, if that movie is supposed to be about the black experience or about liberation from oppression, I don't think it really is actually about any of those things. I think it is sort of um, it's a it's a pastiche of a lot of outdated ways of entertaining ourselves with black characters or black caricatures. Um, but it, there's like a bow on it at the end because he kills everybody. I, I just, I didn't, I didn't care for it. Did you think Black Panther was powerful? I love Black Panther. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, I only yeah, even, I, great. I, I only even asked because I recently interviewed uh, another filmmaker who said that they did not like Black Panther. And I was shocked to hear somebody saying they didn't like Black Panther because it seems string like, them up. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> No, Black Panther was like Black Panther was everything, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But you know, that's the thing. It's like I, I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not for cancel culture. I'm not, I'm not trying to cancel Quentin. It's like nothing like that at all. I'm just being honest. Like that movie really messed with me. Um, but I like a lot of his stuff. I like a lot of his stuff, even in spite of my irritation, you know, with his relationship to sort of black characters. Did Jackie um, Brown have that same thing for you? A little bit, but not as not as much as Django. Um, what was the last one? Hateful Eight. I remember with Hateful Eight, I almost walked out of the theater because I was like, if one more person calls Samuel L. Jackson a nigger, like I have to leave. Like this is not saying Whoa. something about racism. This is just egregious. But then, you know, after the sort of uh, midpoint of that movie, it really turned around for me, and I really got what what Quentin was doing with the film. Mm. Um, well, I hated that one, and yeah, I hated I, I hated Once Upon a Time in Hollywood too. I didn't care for that. I didn't no. care for that. No. I felt like I think I think what I think the other thing that exacerbates it is that I feel like critics in particular, but also audiences really lean into a Quentin Tarantino film and they lean into his choices and the things that he does that, you know, might feel like a, a bit of a bump at first. They lean into them and they find meaning in all of these things and they and and they and they sort of don't um, come to, to black films in the same way or to other films in the same way. Uh, that, that's just a little frustrating because I do feel like, you know, I feel like he kind of gets to do whatever he wants. And, and he made that, you know, he made that space for himself in the industry. So kudos to him for that. 
but I think that's, a, I think a lot of us probably covet that. <laughs> mm. What, um, so uh, I'm a younger filmmakers who are listening, people who want to be where you are when, uh, when they grow up, what advice do you have for them? Run! No, um, <laughs> I would say, uh, I would say put yourself into the culture and don't wait. You know, I think like a lot of it, a lot of us sort of feel, have this asking for uh, permission kind of mindset to it. And when I decided to make Dear White People, uh, you know, it, something just in me snapped. I, I've been working in publicity for eight years and I just sort of decided like, by hook or by crook, I have to break, I have to become a filmmaker. This is my destiny. This is what I have to do. And there was no clear path to make that movie. And so, you know, now we can look back and go, oh yeah, you know, I made I made a, a concept trailer online and that went viral and I raised some money and then we found a financier and it, it all seems like a logical step to step. But at the time, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was just taking the next possible step I could take. You know, and sometimes that step was to have a table read with my friends because that's all I could do with the script today. And I think just sort of finding a way to tell your story, uh, that story that keeps you up at night, just do, there aren't any rules, you know, like stop thinking that you have to sort of there's a playbook to get there. Um, you know, there, the, the idea of taking a concept trailer online and turning that into a movie, like was not like a thing that people were doing when we did it for dear white people. Right. I don't know if it would work again. So, you know, you just, you just got to take any available step and, and, you know, don't let the fact that this is a marketplace cause it is that, uh, and, and your voice may not have the value in that marketplace that you think it should, especially at the beginning of your career. Don't, don't translate that into your actual self-worth, like keep going. Your stories are important. Uh, get them out there by hook or by crook. You know, show me what an Instagram web series looks like if that's what you got to do. Mm. Put it on YouTube. Like, uh, text it to your friends. I don't know, but anything, <laughs> anything. It's very, it's very, it's very. Sounds very much like what Spike was talking about early in his career in terms of, you know, make the film by hook or by crook, however you can. Just get it out there. Um, I have a theory that deep down. Everybody is either scared, angry, or sad. Mm, damn. What do you think about that? Are you one of those? Are you in one of those places right now or normally? Do I have to pick one? <laughs> no, no, because I think quite often we're a, a melange of two or all three. <laughs> yeah, I, I would not. I, okay, so, I mean, that is the great philosophical debate because... Are we deep down that or are we deep down, you know, joy, but it's, it's contained by all the fear and anger and sadness? I don't know. I definitely have all three of those going on for me every day inside <laughs> on a constant basis. Um, I, I don't know how you survive being black queer in the South without some fear, anger and sadness inside. Mm. But uh, I think that's why I'm an artist, because when I make things and I can figure out how to translate that you know, through character and story and people seem to, to pick up on what I'm saying, that makes me feel a little bit better. That sort of lifts the load just a little bit. Mm. Um, but look, man, depression is real. Okay. <laughs> I see a therapist twice a week. Uh, we're Skyping, but we still see each other twice a week. <laughs> uh, and and I, I, I don't, I just don't know. Like, I feel like I wouldn't be realistic if I didn't have some sadness and anger and fear in me mm. uh, just from what I've seen. But you've had a lot of success. Um, yes. What has uh, what has money 
afforded you that's really nice? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, well, you know, I got a Netflix deal in 2014. So, uh, you know, let's, uh, I'm not rich by any means. Uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's been able to look, I, I was able to get my mom a house in Houston. And oh, wow. I'm able to I'm able to pay rent in a really nice neighborhood in L.A. And, um, you know, it sort of takes that particular worry, you know, off my back for stretches of time <laughs> of, of like <laughs> for, how, moments. How, how, for moments, you know, for the period of time I'm getting paid. I don't have to worry about, you know, sort of like, how am I going to make it? How am I going to pay rent? How am I going to eat? You know, um, because, you know, artistic stuff, making art just sort of takes up so much space. I remember when I was broke and I was sort of, you know, trying to figure out how to get my unemployment check to come through. And uh, and I was sort of every month wondering, am I going to get evicted this month? You know, I was still trying to make the movie Dear White People, but it was a lot harder because those other those other pressures can feel so defeating. Um, And so having some financial resource definitely allows me to just sit and dream a little bit for a little bit longer than I, than I was able to in the past. And, mm. and I will take that. Uh, I will definitely take that. I know. And when I was in college, um, I went to Emory in Atlanta and there was a, a, a sort of epic racialized racism moment uh, that happened that sort of stuck with me. That was formative. Um, our moment was a little, not to, tell the whole story but our moment was a little more soldier story than dear white people but um is there a moment of sort of epic racism that happened to you when you were in college that inspired um you know the that that sort of you know sort of speaks to this that sort of informs this whole project i don't know if it's epic racism in college it was more like there were these things that i suspected were racism but that i I wasn't quite sure if I could call them out or say them because I, you know, the people who were, were sort of perpetrating it were so in denial and blind to what they were doing. Um, like, what I remember happened? there was like a there, like I remember there was like this restaurant that we all went to that was like right on the outskirts of the school that they like they had this Confederate flag like hanging in it. And I just remember thinking, like, we're not in the South. This is Southern California. Uh, they're sort of saying that they are, you know, a, a vintage antique store, but I just don't understand like why this flag is hanging so prominently here. Um, you know, people sort of, uh, making assumptions about the way you're going to talk and, you know, your level of sports acumen or, <laughs> you know, I remember being told I wasn't black enough because I couldn't crip dance. Or I remember, I remember this, my white sweet mate in college telling me he was blacker than me because he could, he could crip walk, but I couldn't. Um, I, I, I just remember like, I just remember like all of these ways in which I was constantly like teaching people about my hair and why I could talk like this and still be black. It, it was, it was, I, I just felt very on display, uh, to large swaths of the, not everybody, but to, to swaths of my college populace. Uh, I think growing up, you know, as a, as a little kid, there were some more out, outward forms of it. Um, you know, like I remember not getting invited to a birthday party because I'd be the only black kid there. I remember I remember sort of uh, in my in my neighborhood growing up, the kids making fun of me for talking white. But then the white kids were I was bused to school. You know, I was too black for them to hang out with. Mm. Uh, and I, I grew up in Texas. Like I grew up in Houston, Texas. So, yeah, there were some kids that were carrying on some some very specific attitudes from their parents about black kids. And uh 
you know, my mother is Creole. Uh, she's very light skinned. And so within the black community, we would get a lot of stares. And, you know, among white people, we would get a lot of stares and questions and, you know, people not quite understanding what we were. And, you know, it, 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 I wasn't like run out of my house or anything like that. But, you know, this sort of feeling that like I, something was wrong with me because of my race or, you know, uh, that, you know, people the, being very aware of how people saw me at a very young age uh, I think was probably not great <laughs> mm. <laughs> for my mental, for my mental health <laughs> and for my mm. sense of self, uh, you know, at such a young age. I think I know the answer to this. <clears throat> Is there a character on the show who you feel a little closer to a little more in love with than the others? Is there a favorite child? <laughs> wow not favorite child to write jesus okay. come on um, every family's got the I favorite mean, child i mean lionel is, is is clearly a bit of a cipher for me you know the awkward gay black nerd uh i think he is i think sam and lionel are probably like the extroverted and introverted extremes of my personality mm. um and and lionel specifically because he's gay and black and is sort of navigating all of that uh, you know, is dealing with a lot of things that I very specifically dealt with. You know, one of them is the assumption that black people, that black men in particular won't accept me because I'm gay uh, and having to get over that assumption and realizing that that assumption sometimes is true, but also sometimes is blocking me from connections. Uh, you know, even though it was sort of like a self-defensive thing, um, you know, Lionel has to go through that realization. I had to go through that realization. Uh, finding love and finding a footing in in two different cultures, you know, neither of which you are the majority of. So like in black male culture, you know, gay men are not the majority in that culture. And in gay culture, black men are not the majority in that culture. But trying to survive in both, you know, is something that Lionel has to deal with and that I had to deal with. Um, why didn't you make very, it? Why didn't you make the show about Lionel? Right. Sam is the center. Sam is the center of the movie and the show. Why wouldn't why didn't you make it about Lionel? Well, I, I think I th I would argue that Lionel is shares the center of the movie with Sam. Um, Sam introduces us to the world of Dear White People. It's her radio show that, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of the controversy is centered around. Mm -hmm. But really what we're tracking in that movie, the person who changes the most in that movie is Lionel. Absolutely. Because he is a he's afraid to uh, interact. He's afraid to he, he doesn't believe that he has a space in black culture uh, throughout mm -hmm. that movie. And he learns that he does. And he is the one that sort of begins the overthrow of that party uh, at the end of the movie uh, and sort of oddly begins, you know, becomes the, the sort of de facto leader of the black kids rebellion of the blackface party in that movie. And similarly, I think Sam and Lionel have a, a similar sort of narrative dynamic in the show. And that Lionel, I mean, that Sam is very much an extroverted voice who always tells you what she thinks. Lionel is more the observer and behind the scenes, but both of them impact uh, the world of Winchester. Uh, they, they kind of do this dance where they both impact the world of Winchester in different ways. And that's partly why in season three, they sort of team up uh, to, you know, investigate this, this secret black society called the Order of X. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, Li you know, Lionel is, is uh, Lionel and Sam are both responsible for the worlds that they find themselves in, it's just, they take on different forms. And, and, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm unconsciously dealing with, you know, something about extroversion versus introversion and, 
you know, how is it best to make change? Do we rally and do we protest or do we work within the system? You know, I'm sort of working out some of that stuff too, I think, between the two of them. So what is your superpower? You've had tremendous success in film and in television. You seem to have just sort of changed career midway through following the dream that so many people have and actually making it. So what is your superpower? What is the thing that you are able to do a little or a lot better than most people that's been able to provide you the success you've had? Hmm. I think my superpower is that I I tend to stay curious. Like even, even when I'm being hit with something really difficult, uh, like bad feedback or a bad review or, you know, the, the sort of, I don't know if you remember the cancel Netflix movement of, you know, all these crazy white people who were so offended by the title of dear white people that they tried to get the show canceled. Like <laughs> the, these, the, when I, when I met with those things, they hurt and they suck for a second, but then I begin to be curious about them. And, um, in a lot of ways, the second season of dear white people wrote itself because of the reaction to the first season of dear white people from people who didn't even watch the show. And, you know, being able to sort of transmute that moment into a, a, a doorway into making art, you know, sort of taking the things that I find really difficult and turning the bugs into features and staying curious instead of being defeated, I, I think is something I've been able to do to my own surprise sometimes in, in you know, some darker moments. And, um, you know, whether it's I'm writing, you know, I'm leading a writer's room and, uh, I'm sort of trying to figure out a way to merge all of these distinct voices and opinions into a cohesive narrative. You got to stay curious. Um, you know, when I get told no a bunch of times for something that I think is such an obvious yes and should get greenlit immediately, I got to stay curious. What's a different way to get this made? What's a different way to sort of find my way in? Um, you know, staying curious is how I was able to get dear white people off the ground. It was how I was able to get bad hair made. You know, when I started to make bad hair, I realized, look, I'm a gay black man. I, I think I have a relationship to black women, but I'm not a black woman, woman. So, you know, let me get really curious. Let me get all of my black female friends together and let's, let's have a retreat. And that's what we did. And we went to Palm Springs for a weekend and like watched a bunch of horror movies and talked and, and got into it. Um, you know, I, I think that's what I do. That, that's sort of my default uh, when I when I when I feel challenged, as I try to get curious. Thanks so much to Justin for an epic interview, and thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers: Britt, Jerry, Michael Smith, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montez, and Jason Reynolds. All of you, join us over at Patreon.com/slash Torre Show for more from Justin. And get an extra episode every Friday only for Patreon subscribers. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editors, Ryan Woodhull. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Chanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing people because the man can't shut us down.
We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.